About six weeks ago, Carolyn Gale came to see me in my office. I spoke with Carolyn this week and asked her um, if I could share this, and she graciously granted me permission um, to, to tell you what we had talked about in, uh, in that meeting. She came to see me about six weeks ago in my office, and I could, I could tell the moment that she walked in that something was uh, wrong. She just wasn't herself. She told me that uh, Bill had passed out the day before and had been put on oxygen, which was the, the latest in a long line of setbacks that was indicating his declining condition. And the doctors uh, had spoken to Carolyn about hospice care a couple of weeks prior to that, and this latest incident just seemed to confirm what she feared most, which was that Bill was not going to get better. When Carolyn arrived at my office, she had just returned from signing the papers to place Bill on hospice care, and she was wanting to talk that through and wanting to pray about it. And I I tried to comfort Carolyn by telling her that just because she had signed the hospice papers did not mean that Bill was going to die the next day. Hospice wasn't a death certificate, uh, merely indicated a change of approach to medical care that recognized a, a terminal condition. But that was a very foolish thing to say on my part, because three days later, Bill was gone. And as we spoke that day, Carolyn told me, Pastor, I know he's not going to get better, but I'm praying for a miracle. I know that God can heal him. And what she was expressing was a tension that many of you have felt in similar situations. All medical indicators suggest the inevitability and the imminence of a loved one's death, but you, you also know and believe steadfastly that life and death and sickness and health belong to God and to God alone. You believe that God can heal. You believe in His power to perform miracles. You hope and you pray for that, but you also have to make decisions. And you cannot make those decisions on a basis or on the basis of a miracle that God might or might not choose to perform. But in Carolyn's situation, to put Bill on hospice, or in other situations, to pull a loved one off of life support, it it feels like giving up. Not only giving up on the loved one, but in some sense giving up on God. It's a very difficult situation to be put in. So on that day, Carolyn and I prayed, only we didn't know how to pray. I wanted God to perform a miracle. I wanted God to reach down and to heal Bill's neck and his spine and to restore him to health and to bring Bill Bill home to Carolyn and to bring him back to us. That's what I wanted, but... I also knew that miracles are acts of God contrary to the ordinary course of nature and are by definition rare. They are subject to God's sovereign will and to nothing else, least of all our own desires. Furthermore, the question kind of lurks in the back of my mind, would a miraculous healing actually be the best thing for Bill? 
Because if what Paul says in Philippians 1.21 is true, that for the believer to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Then would it not be true that praying for a miracle would actually be to pray against Bill's gain? Say he were healed. How long would his health last? Another year? Another five years? Another... 10 years, even then, one day would find him back in the same situation. And, and then there's the question of what would be best for Carolyn, who had spent 16 months ministering to her husband in a rehab facility, driving daily to, to Springfield to see him, dealing daily with setbacks and heartaches. I could see that Carolyn was exhausted physically and emotionally and spiritually, And to further complicate matters, even though Bill and Carolyn had been suffering together for almost a year and a half, my theology erected in large measure upon the book of Romans, and Romans 8 in particular, says that suffering produces glory. Therefore, to pray for a miracle, which is what Carolyn and I wanted in that moment, knowing what we knew then, would we have been praying against Bill's glory? Would we have been praying against Carolyn's glory? Do you see the problem? We don't know what God knows, and therefore we don't know how to pray in the midst of suffering. We don't even know what to pray for when suffering ourselves. Every instance of suffering has three potential outcomes as far as I can tell. God could deliver us from suffering by the, by the working, the miraculous intervention of his divine power. He could, he could intervene in response to our prayers and provide healing and restoration and deliverance. And that's what we most naturally want. I mean, we don't want to hurt. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to die. And so we pray, God, deliver me. And sometimes he does. That's one potential outcome. God could grant the miracle for which we pray. Another potential outcome is that our suffering could end in death, which for the believer is a deliverance of sorts. A third potential outcome is that God keeps us in our suffering for a time for the purpose of ultimately sanctifying and glorifying us. And so understanding those three potential outcomes for which one ought we to pray? Well, the answer to that question may seem obvious to you this morning from the comfort of your chair and your currently pleasant circumstances, but it's cloudy and confusing and heart-rending when you're actually in the midst of it. And so Romans 8, 26 to 28 exists to assure us that it is okay not to know what to pray for. It's okay not to know what God knows. Romans 8, 26 to 28 exists to assure us that when we don't know what to pray for, because we don't know what God knows, all we have to do is 
pray. All we have to do is groan. All we have to do is cry out to our Father, and the Spirit will intercede for us according to the will of God. He will turn our weak and uncertain, stumbling prayers into powerful and effectual petitions before the Father. That's the point of Romans 8, 26 to 28. So let's look at this text this morning and let's ask the question, how do we pray for the suffering saint? How do we pray for ourselves in the midst of our own sufferings? I see in this text three answers. First, praying for the suffering saint means praying in weakness. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. All right, under this first heading, I want to highlight three words from verse 26 that get to the core of what I mean by praying in weakness. Okay, the first is obviously the word weakness. I want to look at that word. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. What does that mean? The second is the word likewise. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Like what? And the third is the word groanings. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Whose groanings? What groanings? Because I think those three words together point to the context in which the Spirit's intercession for us takes place. So, first... What does Paul mean by weakness? What kind of weakness is he talking about? Well, there's one other time in the book of Romans where Paul uses this word. And that's in Romans 6.19, where it's not actually translated weakness, although it's the exact same word in the Greek. It's translated in the ESV, natural limitations. Romans 6.19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Literally, because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Alright, so Paul is... Using a human analogy, he says, I'm speaking to you in human terms. And that human analogy is that of slaves or of servitude. And he's using this analogy of, of slavery in order to teach us a divine truth. Now, why? Why can't he just give us the truth? Because we have natural limitations. We have a weakness that besets us. He means that we have an inability to fully comprehend divine truth, an inability to fully comprehend the truth specifically of the experience of our conversion, how it is that being set free from sin does not mean that we are now autonomous and a law unto ourselves, but rather we are now free to become the slaves of God and slaves of righteousness. So I'm suggesting to you that Paul is using the same word in Romans 8.26, in the same way that he used it in Romans 6.19. He's referring to our natural limitations in understanding all of the factors and all of the eventualities of our present circumstances. 
Tim Keller says this, that if we knew what God knew, then we would want what God wants and we would pray accordingly. The problem is that we don't know what God knows. Why? Because we're weak. Therefore, we don't always want what God wants and we don't pray in accordance with God's will. All we know is that we hurt or someone we love is hurting and we want it to stop. And it's at that point of weakness that the Spirit helps us. And the knowledge of the Spirit's present intercession is designed to be an encouragement to us in our sufferings in the same way that the hope of future glory is an encouragement to us in our sufferings. That's the function of the word likewise. At the beginning of verse 26, Paul's thought in this passage flows like this. In the same way that looking ahead to the future glory, that was the theme of verses 18 to 25, all right? How do we suffer in patience? By looking ahead, by considering that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed, right? In this hope, we were saved. That's, that's verses 18 to 25. So one of the ways that we find encouragement in the midst of our sufferings is by focusing upon the, the promise of future hope. Likewise, another way that we receive encouragement, that another way that God sustains his children in the midst of our present sufferings is by telling us about the Spirit's intercession, which makes our weak prayers powerful and effective, even though you haven't the slightest clue how to pray and all you can do is just sort of mutter groans of pain. So how do you persevere through sufferings in faith and in hope and in joy? First, verses 18 to 25, by looking ahead to the future glory and considering that the present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with that glory. That's first. And second, likewise... By resting in and relying upon the Spirit's present intercession for you on your behalf. Then third, what does Paul mean by groanings? Too deep for words, literally unutterable groanings. Well, one of the major questions related to this verse is, who's groanings? Who's doing the groaning? Are they our groanings? Are they the Spirit's groanings? Are they both? Does it even matter? Well, I think the answer here is that these groanings that Paul speaks of that are unutterable are our groanings initiated and impelled by the Spirit within us and then translated by the Spirit into powerful and effective petitions and, and taken to the throne of grace. Petitions that are in accordance with the will of God. All right? So let me give you some reasons for this view. The view that says that these are our groanings, but they're our groanings that are initiated and impelled by the Spirit. He he causes us to groan, and then he takes those unutterable groanings, those wordless groanings, and he translates them into powerful and effective petitions which are in accordance with the will of God. Let me give you some reasons for that view. First, it doesn't seem to me that the Spirit would communicate with the Father in unutterable groans. 
That doesn't seem to make sense to me. Why would the Spirit not be able to utter his petitions? Okay, the Spirit is not weak. He's not beset by the same weakness that besets us. He's not confused as to what God's will is. On the contrary, he knows the will of God perfectly. He's well aware of what should be prayed for. So I don't think the Spirit is groaning. Second, in verse 27, God is said to search our hearts, not the Spirit's heart, our hearts. Well, why is God searching our hearts? Well, because that's where the groanings are. They originate from the Spirit. They flow through our hearts where they are rendered unutterable because of our weakness, and then they are translated by the Spirit into powerful and effective prayers that that accord with God's will, and they are taken to the throne of grace by the same Spirit. Third, Paul has used the word groan twice already in the immediate context. In verse 22, he uses it to refer to the groaning of creation. In verse 23, to the groaning of the children of God. These verses show that for Paul, the word groaning is is attached to the idea of fallenness. Why does creation groan? Because it's fallen. Why do the children of God groan? Because we're still fallen. Creation is fallen into futility and corruption, and so it, it groans in longing for the birth of the new creation. Likewise, the children of God are fallen into the same futility of, and corruption, and so likewise we groan as we await eagerly the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Groaning is what happens when fallenness longs for glory. But the Spirit is not fallen. And he's always perfectly glorious. So I don't think these are the Spirit's groans. I think these are our groans, initiated by the Spirit and translated by the Spirit. And then finally, I think we get a little hint of what Paul means here about the interplay between the Spirit and our spirit in verses 26 and 27, because there's a similar interplay up in verses 16 and 17, or 15 and 16, rather. Look up there. Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Question, who cries, Abba, Father? Is it the Spirit or us? We do. Very good. We do. By whom? By the Spirit. We cry, Abba, Father, by the Spirit. So the Spirit impels us to cry out to God as Father, thus bearing witness to our spirit that we are God's children. I think the same thing's going on in verses 26 and 27. The Spirit is impelling us to groan to God with our sufferings, which is all we can do because of our weakness, But then he takes those groans and translates them into powerful and effective prayers which accord perfectly with the will of God. So tying all of this together, how do we pray when we or our loved ones are suffering? We pray in our weakness. In other words, we pray even though we don't know what to pray for. 
Even though we don't know what the will of God is, even though we don't know what would be best, we pray nonetheless. When we cannot find the words to speak because the pain is too great, then we just simply groan to God. We're suffering, we're weak, we don't know the will of God, so we groan. And that groaning is of the Spirit, and it will ascend to the Father by the Spirit in petitions and intercessions that accord with the will of God. So when we or our loved ones are suffering, we pray in weakness, and that weakness by the Spirit becomes power. Second, we pray in faith. We pray in faith that the Spirit takes our unutterable groanings and translates them into powerful and effective prayers that accord with the will of God. Verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, when we groan, when we, when we kneel down to pray and we just seem to fumble about because we're so weak and frail of mind and of heart that we don't know what to pray for, we shouldn't despair that our prayers are therefore weak. Even though we are weak, we shouldn't d- despair that our prayers are weak and will fail to ascend to the Father and accomplish nothing. Far from it, says Paul. Because the Spirit is the one who has prompted you in the midst of your grief and your pain to take your groaning to God. You didn't come up with that yourself. In the midst of your groaning, it wasn't you who decided, I will take this to my Father. That's the Spirit within you. And the Spirit is the one who will take those inarticulate groans, those fumbling, stumbling prayers, and will translate them into powerful petitions that fling open the storehouses of heaven and call forth the blessings and glory of God from the throne of His grace. I think we find an example of this kind of weak yet faithful prayer in the Apostle's own life in Philippians chapter 1, which not coincidentally, was the text that I preached at Bill's funeral. Why don't you go ahead and turn there with me. Philippians chapter 1. Paul is in prison, most likely in Rome. And the Philippian church loved Paul deeply, and they were concerned about his condition. So they sent one of their own members, a young man by the name of Epaphroditus, to Rome with supplies for Paul and with instructions to minister to Paul in his need. We we read about that at the end of chapter 2. At some point during his time in Rome, Paul became or Epaphroditus rather became gravely ill. In fact, Paul says in Rome or Philippians 2:26 that he almost died. But now Epaphroditus has sufficiently recovered and Paul is sending him back to his home church, back to Philippi along with This letter, the letter that is called Philippians. And in the opening chapter of this letter, Paul informs the church about his welfare and about the status of his imprisonment, which is currently up in the air. Paul doesn't know how it's going to turn out. Why? Because he's weak. So beginning in verse 19, Paul writes, Yes, 
and I will rejoice for I know that your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, do you hear Romans eight twenty six and 27 in those verses through your prayers aided by the help of the spirit of God? This will turn out for my good, for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let me point out three things out of this text. First, Note that Paul is suffering. Now, the tone of this letter is admittedly far different than the tone of 2 Timothy, for instance. Which means that his, his imprisonment while he's writing the letter to the Philippians is of a different nature. It's not nearly as miserable as the second imprisonment, which would take place about five years later. But it's imprisonment nonetheless. Right? Paul's not free. And there's the very real possibility that, that this is not going to go well for him. That this imprisonment will end in his untimely death. So Paul is suffering. He's groaning. Second, I want you to notice that Paul is experiencing the very same weakness that he speaks about in Romans 8.26. He doesn't know the will of God. Therefore, he doesn't know how he should be praying. It seems that he has some notion that he's going to be released. Um, perhaps he had some insight that his apostolic work was incomplete, but he's not assured of the outcome, which is why he's seriously contemplating the reality of death. That's a real possibility for him. Now note thirdly, the faith with which he faces an uncertain future and how he connects that faith with the prayer and the ministry of the Spirit. Look again at verse 19. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, right? That's, that's a statement of absolute confidence. Where does it come from? Prayer and the intercession of the Spirit. And what does he mean by deliverance? It's my eager expectation and hope that will, I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Notice, by deliverance, Paul does not mean being released from prison. Or at least that's not all that he means. He's unsure whether he will live or whether he will die. He's unsure of that. What he's confident in is that the prayers of the Philippian church, aided by the intercession of the Spirit, will deliver him from a fate that he considers to be worse than death, namely, cowardice in the midst of his suffering. 
the cowardice that would result in him dishonoring Christ as he faces the uncertainty of imprisonment and death. In other words, if we were to overlay Romans 8, 26 and 27 upon this passage in Philippians 1, we can see it play out in a very real life situation. Paul is weak. He's suffering and groaning from an unpleasant present and an uncertain future. He doesn't know how to pray. Does he pray to be released? This seems to him to be better for the churches that he's established. Or does he pray to be martyred? Paul considers that eventuality to be gained, to enter into the presence of Christ, having stood faithful to the end. He says, I kind of prefer that outcome. Furthermore, the Philippians don't know how to pray. Their hearts undoubtedly desire Paul's release and return. So notice this. You probably have Paul praying for one thing, namely death. And the Philippians praying for another thing, namely life. Yet their prayers are not canceling out one another, are they? What's happening? As the Philippians are praying in their weakness, and as Paul is praying in their weakness, those prayers, impelled and initiated by the Spirit, are being sorted out by the Spirit, constructed together, translated into powerful and effectual prayers. And Paul says it's because of that, the Spirit's work, that I am absolutely confident that come life or come death, I will not give in to cowardice, I will not give in to fear, I will remain steadfast to the very end he was sure of that outcome not because he knew how things were going to turn out but because he was confident in the spirit's intercessory ministry that's how paul prayed both in weakness when he didn't know how to pray and in faith Because he knew it didn't matter. It didn't matter that he didn't know how to pray because the Spirit would take his weak prayers and make them powerful. Well, there's one further point to make. We've seen that we can pray in weakness because we don't know how to pray. And we've seen that we can pray in faith because the Spirit does know how to pray. But how do we know that what the Spirit prays for will be for our good? in addition to God's glory. To put it in practical terms, when Carolyn and I prayed together, we prayed in weakness. We didn't know whether to pray for Bill's health, which would be only a temporary stay at best. We didn't know whether to pray for his death, which would be gain for him. We only knew that our hearts desired the former and that God's answer would probably be the latter, which is precisely what happened. Carolyn was hurting. The spirit inside her impelled her to turn her grief and her pain to God, but all she could manage was groaning. But the spirit who inspired her to groan to God also translated those groans into powerful and effective petitions which were perfectly in accord with the will of God because the spirit knows the will of God and God knows the mind of the spirit. That day, even though 
neither she nor I knew it at the time, we prayed for Bill's death. We prayed for Bill's gain. We prayed for Bill's glory, even though we prayed for Bill's healing. Because that was God's will, and that's precisely what happened. And it was good. It was good for Bill. It was gain. To live is Christ. To die is what? Gain. Bill was not shorted when God said, I'm, I, I understand, Carolyn and Tim, what you're asking for, but that's not best. So I'm going to take those prayers and I'm going to turn them and I'm going to do what is right and good. Namely, I'm going to give Bill gain. For Bill to depart and to be with Christ was far better, says Paul in Philippians 1.23. It was better for Bill. But here's the question. Was it better for Carolyn? Was it good for Carolyn? Can Carolyn trust the Spirit to turn her groanings into prayers for her good and not just for her husband's good? In other words, can she pray in hope? Yes, she can. Because Paul proceeds immediately to perhaps the most astounding and important promise in all of the Bible, verse 28. Here's how it goes. Here's Paul's thought process, right? We don't know what to pray for because we're weak. We don't know what God knows. Therefore, we, we don't know if we're wanting what God wants. We don't know how to pray. All we know is that it hurts and we're groaning. That's okay, though, because the Spirit is the one who is impelled us to turn our groaning towards God and to, and to throw them up towards the Father. And, and the Spirit is the one who will translate those groanings into powerful and effectual petitions before God. And, and then here comes the hope. And we know, while we are groaning in weakness and in faith, we know that God will cause all things to work together for good. Who? For, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, not just Bill, but Carolyn. We know that. So Paul says, you can pray in weakness, you can pray in faith, and you can pray in a sure and steadfast hope that all of your groanings will be for your good. That is confidence. All things, without exception, work for the good of the called, the lovers of God, the children of God. In other words, Bill's death was not just gain for Bill, it was good for Carolyn, although it did not feel like it at the time, nor does it feel like it right now. Right now it hurts, it's terrible, it's painful, it's lonely. But because of the promise of Romans 8.28, we know that it will work for her good. There will come a day when she will find out that God's timing in all of this the 16 months in rehab, the death when we asked for healing, God's timing in it all has been absolutely pristine. He's done all things well. His plan was perfect, and she will thank the Holy Spirit for translating her unutterable groans into powerful and effective petitions which are in accordance with God's good and perfect plan. 
Is that not liberating? You don't have to know the will of God. You don't have to pry into the hidden mysteries of God's divine providence in order to pray effectively. All you have to do is trust Him. Groan to God. Pray in weakness. And trust Him. Pray in faith. To do what is good. Pray in hope. And that's how you can have the same boldness and confidence that Paul had, regardless of the uncertainty and unpleasantness of your present circumstances. Groan to God in the midst of your weakness, and he will turn your groaning into good, verse 28, which is to say he will turn it into glory, verses 29 and 30. So this morning, I want us to put this into practice. As we conclude... I want you to join me in a time of prayer. Right now, I want you to think of a present suffering, a present struggle, a present frustration, futility, heartache, a present groaning that you're enduring right now. It doesn't matter how big, it doesn't matter how small. Any frustration that results from the gap that exists between what you long for, namely glory, and what you presently experience, namely groaning. Okay? I want you to take a moment. I want you to grasp a hold of what that is. What is it right now that I need help in, but I don't know how it's going to work out, and I don't know what to pray for? Now let's take that suffering to the throne of grace. Let's bow together. First, with that groaning in mind, I want you to pray in weakness. Just groan to God. Admit that that you don't know exactly how to pray. Admit that you don't have the words to express what you're feeling. All that would come out is fumbling prayers. Maybe even admit that in the midst of your pain, you don't even feel like praying. Take all of that groaning and turn it Godward. Now pray in faith. Confess your faith in the promise of the word and in the ministry of the Spirit. Tell God that you believe that the Spirit is the one who is impelling you to groan, and that He is the one who will translate that groan into powerful and effective prayers before God, because He knows the will of God and always intercedes accordingly. Confess your faith in the promise of the word before God over your groaning. And then finally, pray in hope. I want you to rest this morning in the absolutely steadfast promise that there is nothing, nothing, no exceptions, Nothing which can befall you 
which is not predestined for your good, for your glory. And that right now the Spirit is praying effectual prayers before the Father, who is right now hearing and answering and decreeing your good and your glory. And this morning, you don't have to know or discern all of the the providential connections between your prayer and God's answer. Between your present growing and, and your future glory. All you have to do this morning is believe God's promise. Groan to God. And the Spirit who compelled you to groan will take those weak prayers and translate them into powerful and effectual petitions which God will hear, God will answer, and God will decree accordingly for your good. You can trust Him. You don't have to know what God knows. All you have to do is groan.